when Tim Parks travels to the far south of Italy, he makes a point to enjoy the multi-sensory experience, knowing that in Italy, a train ride is more than just transportation. Especially in the older trains, which have slightly rattly windows, there is a wonderful wham when the train comes out of the tunnel and it comes together with this explosion of light. Coming up in the hour ahead, we're devoting an hour to the culture and character of Italy. Historical influences from north to south really do make for some interesting contrasts. And think about somebody living in Agrigento, about 75 miles from Libya and Tunisia. Then think somebody coming from Milan, less than 20 miles from Switzerland. But wherever you live in Italy, Mama remains an important part of your everyday life. She lives on the top floor, I live on the middle floor, and then when it's lunchtime, because my wife, she cannot cook, she put the lasagna in a basket, she throw the basket, and everyone is grabbing the food for lunch. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. In a lot of countries, the differences between how people do things in the South versus the North can be substantial. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring Italy from North to South. Their rail system's a good example. High-speed rail lines connect the cities of northern Italy with a degree of efficiency that the older and slower trains in the south can only dream of. Tim Parks has lived in Italy since 1981, and he commutes to work by rail from his home in Verona. In his book, Italian Ways On and Off the Rails from Milan to Palermo, Tim paints a wry and affectionate portrait of what a train trip across Italy can show you. Tim, thanks for being here. Thanks. Good to be here. When you go to Italy and you use the trains, first of all, there are some classic rides. You've spent a lot of time riding around Italy. What are some of the the greatest stretches, just to make sure you're looking out the window and enjoying where you are? Well, I don't think you can go to Italy now without using the high-speed train and just getting a feel of really what modern train travel is about. So get on that train in Milan and go down at least to Florence with the wonderful succession of tunnels and then marvellous hillscapes with vines and Mm. fruit trees and so on, and then back into the tunnel again. And Mm. and there's just an extraordinary... You're you're travelling up to 200 miles an hour, and it's extremely smooth, safe, rapid, wonderful experience. From that train, if you took a look at Leonardo's Mona Lisa before you left and look at the background in that painting, just the dreamy Tuscan countryside and then you're going through Tuscany and Umbria, you'll see that same background right there today out the window of the train. Absolutely, but whipped away from you. Of course, it's not just that background. There are also some uh, interesting industrial escapes. Yeah, the reality of today. But yeah, if you travel along the coast, for example, from France into Italy, which was Mm. my first experience of Italy when I was, I think, 19, again, you have a wonderful experience of a train rattling a bit more in this case, through tunnels and then views of the Mediterranean and the steep hills going down into the sea. There are other absolutely classic rides. I mean, one thing for those few people who really do go down to the far south is to get trains in Calabria, which is the toe of Italy, along the south coast Mm -hmm. and go right across to Puglia. They're very, very small trains, just two carriages, perhaps a little smelly sometimes with the diesel fumes Mm -hmm. because they're not electrified. But it's really an extraordinarily dreamy experience and very, very beautiful, yeah. Just uh, a little more on that northern idea, going along the Italian Riviera from Genoa over toward Florence. It's half tunnels and half glorious uh, Mediterranean seascapes and terraced hillsides and sleepy little ports. And it's so fun to be looking at the black wall of the tunnel and then wham, that you just slammed yeah. by all this color and this light. And then you're back into the tunnel and you don't know what's next. But then, bam, you're slammed by all this glorious Mediterranean beauty. Just love it. You put it very well, Ring. Yeah, I've done it. it. All. I love that. <laughs> you got <thing>. it. <laughs> you know the feeling. You know the Absolutely. feeling. Absolutely. There's a wonderful, especially in the older trains, which have slightly rattly windows, there is a wonderful wham when the train comes out of the tunnel and it comes together with this explosion of light, sparkling sea particularly. And, <sighs> you know, what? and then it's gone. You know, It's been taken away from you. It's wonderful. I kind of like the classic trains that have this patina of the old days or whatever. You've got the, the doors and the curtains and the little bit dirty windows and the rhythm of the rail and the toilets that you can look through and see the tracks underneath. Uh, talk a little bit about that sort of reality of the good old trains of Italy. Well, you've got a huge range of carriages, obviously, in Italy now, from those modern monsters that are like being inside an airplane to some extremely old things. 
My favourites are the intercity trains from the 1980s, which have these rather noble carriages and compartments, which fit six people. And they have all kinds of switches for doing things like changing the ventilation and changing the lighting and, mm-hmm. and moving your headrest and stuff like this. None of these things work anymore. I was going to say, they don't work. <laughs> I've, I've fiddled with those tech. air conditioning switches forever, and I finally yeah, just opened the window. curtains and so on. And what's wonderful about them is this feeling that there's a past there that you're no longer... I mean, they still have no smoking signs when now you can't smoke anywhere anyway, so... Right. The toilets I'm less enamored of than you obviously are, <laughs> uh, partly because of, partly because I know how much they can smell from a distance. But it is wonderful looking in, in any old vehicle, the kind of ideas of what the future was or what luxury was years and years ago. That's For true. example, the curtains they put inside compartments so that the people in the compartment could close the curtains and not be looked at by people in the corridor. Of course, all this had to go when people started getting scared that they would be assaulted or raped whenever they went into a carriage. And people used to use them rather meanly, like there'd be just two people in a compartment and they would draw the curtains hoping that other people wouldn't look in and join them and so on and so forth. And I remember a million times standing outside a compartment in a full train thinking, am I going to open despite the closed curtains? (laughs) You'd open them and maybe find people kissing a little bit too intimately on the et cetera, et cetera. You sit down in a compartment with two people intimately uh, embraced and you feel like... Well, in those cases, I'm quite generous and live them to it. You'd sit on the little foldable chair in the aisle? Well, I might have done on on occasions when I was feeling very generous. You're a nicer guy than me. (laughs) <laughs> Other times you'd find that some mean old businessman is just, just trying to stake out the whole place to <laughs> I himself. Know. Well, on an overnight train, on an overnight train, you'll find somebody closes the door and he stretches out and he'll have you sitting in the aisle all night so he can oh, stretch out. And in that well, case, I have to watch my language on I this just show, say, I guess, excuse right me, we're all in this right. together, sit up. <laughs> Absolutely. What, one of my big ones with trains is moving seats. I just refuse to sit near anybody causing me trouble. Late at night on those trains, you have to be careful that some people are looking for an altercation, and it's best to get up and move and not make any point. Just get up and go to another car. Or a Absolutely. lot of times around Naples, you know, you've got some ruffians on the trains late at night. I think you might want to sit closer to the conductor's compartment and this sort of thing so you are more safe after dark on the trains. Yeah, I don't think we need to go to Naples to find the ruffians. Right. Like, I think there are plenty of those all over the place. But... It's always wise just to move to another carriage on a train if if things are getting noisy. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking train travel in Italy with Tim Parks, who's probably done more train travel than anybody we've ever talked to. Tim has spent three decades commuting all over Italy by train, and he's written a book about it, about how train culture connects with the Italian culture. The book is called Italian Ways, On and Off the Rails from Milan to Palermo. So I don't know many words, but I do know sciopero, strike in Italian, and... Uh, As travelers, we should be aware of that. If there is a train strike, I find it's sort of a nuisance strike, and and you still go to the station and you you try to struggle your way to your destination. What's your take on that? Well, again, this is a big anthropological thing. Italians hate a final conflict showdown, so strikes in Italy are never what strikes are in the UK or the USA, where people down tools and they won't go back to work until there's some agreement. The strikes are usually one-day strikes. Uh, they're mainly to irritate their employers and try mm-hmm. and shift something. Nobody ever knows what the strikes are really about. They usually happen on a Friday so that the workers can get a longer weekend. So mm. when there's a strike in Italy, it's so negotiated and compromised that, that you can actually get on the Internet or inside the station itself. There will be what's called a strike timetable, huh. and there will be essential services to most places And so a strike really isn't a strike in many ways. But as always in Italy, it's not a country for beginners. It's not a country where everybody's going to explain to you very quickly what's going on. You have to kind of know the ropes a little bit or or get some help. And you can flex in a way that even the chaos works to your favor. Like when I go to an Italian station, if my train is late, the train before me that I assumed I would miss might also be late and coming in in just a few minutes. So you got to look at that trains departing imminently schedule, not the printed schedule, but that one right up in the center of the wall where you <laughs> enter the station. And there you see what's really happening. You could even be half hour late, but still look at that board because there's a pretty good chance that you've still got a train leaving in a few minutes. Absolutely. Stay wide awake when you get to the station, that's for sure. You might find if you go down to a place like Palermo that what's happening on the 
announcements board bears absolutely no relationship <laughs> to what's actually happening out on the platforms. That's happened to me. Oh, is that right? But, that takes it one step yeah, further. No, that's right. So you've got to actually, be out on the there, platform. There's some of that with the private trains too, where the rail system run by the state network doesn't give you the information you need to get on the private train. So if you're traveling on a private train, the Italo, for example, which is a wonderful, fast private train, you have to be a little bit careful about the announcements. Mm-hmm. As for strikes, I love traveling at strike time because most workers will use a rail strike as an excuse for not going to work, whereas in fact the trains will be, some trains will be running and they'll be empty, so it's great. You know, I've noticed that because I'm just hell-bent to get to my next town on this day and there's a strike, so my standard is just go to the station and find out what's going on and take the next train going in that direction, even if it's not going all the way. Then I get off as far as I can and then talk out over again and keep going. And I would have thought the trains would be mobbed, but the trains are invariably laid back and relaxed, and you're just a couple hours delayed, and the strike becomes a fun memory. Well, trains can get mobbed sometimes, but, mm-hmm. but yes, the strikes are, the, are almost the time when they're not going to be mobbed because nobody's going to try and travel yet. So, Tim, a lot of us are dreaming about going to Italy, and we have dealing with the Italian trains and the chaos and trying to get the most out of the culture and celebrate all the uniqueness of Italy uh, because it's certainly not Denmark. How can we get the most out of our trip when it comes to using the trains thoughtfully? Well, the first thing I'd say is don't think of the train just as a way of getting from A to B. Don't think of it just, I'm in a big hurry to be in Rome, so what's the fastest train? and, oh, damn, it's 10 minutes late, and stuff like that. Travel on different kinds of trains, use the fast train, use the regional trains, go to smaller places, and above all, look at the way people are behaving on the trains. Try the first class, try the second class. Look at the design of the trains. Italians are just fantastic designers. You'll find even the way they've done repairs to the seat upholstery, they'll make it look as though if it was a design (laughs) feature at the beginning. There are just so many little things to look at. The way they use their mobile phones, which is definitely different from the way people use them in other countries, and so on and so forth. Just like make the train trip part of the sightseeing because every nation expresses itself the way it does complicated things like set up a, like set up a train network. And the Italian train network is, is a very special thing. Even when it comes to the rolling minibar and you want a little tiny cup of coffee. Yeah, the rolling minibar and a little cup of coffee and you're going to get into a very complicated business of receipts which are going to be pulled off a little package and put in your hand and you're told that you have to hold on to them for the rest of the trip in case you get an inspection. And if they find that you've had a coffee and see the coffee cup there and that you haven't got a receipt, there's going to be all kinds of trouble because you'll be suspected of buying it underpriced, etc. Et <laughs> Life is good in Italy. There you go. Tim Parks, grazie mille for the uh, fascinating insight into the Italian culture via the Italian rails. Grazie, Rick. Risentirci. È stato bellissimo. There's more about Tim Parks' book, Italian Ways, and his latest novel at tim-parks.com. You can also listen to his first appearance on Travel with Rick Steves in the show's archives. Look for program number 351 from January 2014. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Our journey's just begun. There's more on Italy, north versus south, in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, my name is Arnaud Servignan. I live in Paris. Un repas sans fromage est comme une belle à qui manque un oeil. A meal without a cheese is like a beautiful lady that misses an eye. Merci. Un repas sans fromage est comme une belle à qui manque un oeil. 
That's good. <laughs> Perfect. You can encounter thousands of years of history almost anywhere you walk in Italy. But unifying the various states of Italy as one nation didn't happen until 1861, and it still took another nine years to defeat the papal states and make Rome Italy's capital. That's part of the reason you'll notice some real differences in Italy from north to south. Sicily is barely 100 miles from the coast of Tunisia in North Africa, and the Italian Alps border Austria and Switzerland. So you can expect some real contrasts as you travel from the Alps in the north of Italy down to the beaches of Sicily. Let's explore this with two of my favorite guides from opposite sides of Italy. Aldo Valario lives in the far south in sunny Sicily, while Ricardo Panareo lives up in Urbino. That's about 800 kilometers due north of Aldo, near the Adriatic coast. Ciao, Ricardo. Ciao, buonasera a tutti. And Aldo Valerio. Ciao, Rick. Buonasera. Thank you guys for being here. Now, Aldo, uh, what's your story? Where do you live? Yeah, now I'm living in Sicily. Okay. It's about uh, 14 years I've been living in Sicily, but my family comes from the Amalfi Coast. Okay, so you're going to represent the South. Yes, I'm going to represent the South. And Riccardo, where are you living? I'm living towards the northern part of Italy, say central north Adriatic coast, in an area called uh, Rimini. Or Urbino. Maybe people know it better as Urbino because that's the oldest uh, center in that area. That's the famous uh, historic town. Historic town. Urbino, very nice town. And what is the state that you're in? Uh, It's a little region called Marches, Marche in Italy. Marche, yeah. And there's more and more interest in Marche, I think. A lot of people are discovering the beauties of Marche. Yeah, because it's got the same beauty of Tuscany and Umbria, but it's cheaper. Not yet so uh, famous. Yeah. So, La Marche, M-A-R-C-H-E. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Without all of the high prices and high tourists and lots of tour buses of Tuscany and, uh, and so on. All over Italy, we have this concept of Campanilissimo. Tell me what that is, Ricardo. <laughs> so it comes from Campanile. Campanile is bell tower. As in the old days, in the Middle Ages and earlier, the bell tower was supposed to be the highest spot in town. So every community used to have a lot of prouds of having a bell tower. My tower is taller than yours. Oh, okay. So, so Campanile is the bell tower and you're proud of your bell tower. Yes, yeah, so you, you're proud of your town. So when you defend your town against somebody else's town... Then it's campanilismo. Okay. My tower is taller than yours. And Aldo, do you have a campanilissimo down for uh, in Sicily? Do you have the same concept or what? Not really, not no. really. But we like defending everything. As you know, in southern Italy, we are very we like protecting our area because we feel like a little bit different. You've had to do a lot of protecting over the centuries. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's where the great heritage is to oh. be found in my lots of protecting. Lots of protecting and, and lots of uh, failing to protect. Oh, yes. Well, tell us about the different layers of Sicily. Well, I mean, we... Conquerors. You, yeah, Greeks, Romans, and the Arabs, and the Carthaginians, uh, uh, so many. Because, I mean, it's just in the center of the Mediterranean, as in Alice. It was yeah. easy to get there and to conquer the area, so... Okay, now... In Italy, are people loyal first to Italy or to their region? Because in 1870, when they finally created Italy, Cavour, Mazzini, Garibaldi, all of these guys, the famous phrase is, uh, do you you know what I'm going to say? Yeah. We've created Italy. Ah, we created... Now we have to create Italians. Italian, Italiani. Okay, it's 140 years later. Have we created Italians? Mm. Ricardo. Well, under some aspects, no, really, because, you see, we are a fresh country. Although, when you talk about Italy, mine goes to two, three thousand years ago. But the Italy today is even younger than the United States of America. So you've got uh, 2,000 years of heritage, Mm -hmm. but the political entity we think of as Italy... Very very young. It's younger than America. Sure. It's as young as Germany. It's only 1870. And there are so many differences between the north and the south due to the landscape, due to the climatic conditions, but especially due to the historical conditions because we all had different dominations and each of them left something in the south, in the center, and in the north. Aldo, when you think about the differences between the north and the south, how would you characterize them? Well, I mean, as my colleague said, uh, the past and also the, the heritage that we have has shaped a different kind of Italian. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, the difference is to be found in the mentality, 
as well. The north has always been industrialized for so many years. It's always been the area where from the south they used to move uh, into the north to find luck, to find a job. Okay. And to be honest with you, it hasn't changed at right. all. There is a big gap. So still Sicilians be- are still going oh, to yeah. north for jobs. Like in oh, the yeah. past, like, still nowadays they're moving to the north because uh, they can see the north as the opportunity. Even if nowadays, yeah. to be honest with you, with the conditions of Italy, there's not really so much opportunity okay. all over Italy. Because I remember traveling in Italy if you're on the road on the wrong day, it's the day the workers are going on vacation and they're That's all it. going oh, yeah. home to Sicily. And then you are in good company then. <laughs> you're in good company. You meet a lot of friends on the motorway, <laughs> the auto grills of the so, motorway. Ricardo, if you think of the differences between the North and the South, I, I guess one thing is the South was more under uh, colonial, they were occupied by uh, foreign powers and just kept down. Mm. Whereas in the North, you do have some industry yes. and some, some wealth. But I think there is another condition that should be considered. Think about for a minute Italy. It's a long stretch of land, 800 miles long, more or less as long as California, mm-hmm. you know, more or less. And think about somebody living in Agrigento, about 75 miles from Libya and Tunisia. 75 miles, miles from, from Libya? Then think somebody coming from Milan, less than 20 miles from Switzerland. Yeah. Beside the fact that they have two arms and two legs and one head, which other similarity do you have? So you got uh, more you know, of a Libyan flavor course, in the south yeah, and, and more yeah. of a German flavor yes. in the north. That's the reason why Italy is so famous and so charming, because within a rather limited part of the world, we have so many different historical, I cultural, temperamental And the more uh, we travelers can be tuned into that, the more fun we're going to have. Within 50 miles. You drive two hours, one hour, mm-hmm. two hours, and you, you already see the differences. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Italy and the differences between the north and the south. And we're joined by Ricardo Panareo and Aldo Valerio. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Nancy's on the line from Love Ladies, New Jersey. Nancy, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. It's great to be with you. The, um, the question I had is the Catholic Church really controlled the South until the time of the unification. But the North was held variously by quite a number of other European countries. And I was really curious to hear how your guests would talk about the impact that both of those cultures had on the people there. So the impact of the Catholic Church and the impact of other European cultures, namely Austrians and French. The French, French, Austrians, Spanish. <laughs> okay, uh, Ricardo. But, uh, it's more how the Catholic yeah. Church. And the Catholic, the Catholic Church. Catholic Church is I have to say that obviously Italy historically has been always under the, the influence, let's say, of the Church. I have to correct maybe if Nancy doesn't mind. The southern part of Italy was not directly ruled by the Pope. The Mm -hmm. Popes, for about a thousand years, they ruled the central part of Italy. The southern part of Italy, they had their own different dominations. The last one before unification was the Bourbons. The side Bourbon. branch okay. of the family from... Oh, okay. So the far south was under the French control, for, but, I mean, things change over the centuries, sure. but a good part of the center of Italy was really dominated by the church. Sure. And sure. how has that impacted Italy today? Well, still today, the church is very, very important. I mean, uh, still today, politically speaking, the church, although Italy, since the unification, especially after the Second World War, doesn't have any stated religion, you know, but still the influence of the centuries you know, cannot be avoided. It, so it's it, still strong. Unification wasn't quite that easy because, well, 95% of Italy unified in 1870, mm. right? The Vatican mm. states held mm. out until... Sure. When was the Vatican, uh, the treaty in 1929? Finally, the Pope said, okay, okay I give up. <laughs> and, then, and then Italy left the tiniest place there for the, the independent Vatican state. But, but still, the church is very, very influential. It's always, it's been, it's always ah. been very powerful. So it's always been a great symbol of power. And then uh, still nowadays. Now, is so that, is there a trend for a change or is it still always the same? Because less people go to church now than oh, sure, yeah. two generations less people before. Go. It's not like in the past that there was really this uh, uh, great importance we were given. When I was a child, for yeah. instance, and then my father was forcing me to go to church yeah. almost three times a week. And nowadays, it's not like that. But you know what's very interesting to me, you guys, is if most Italians, their families are Catholic, yeah. and you know, if they trip on the bus, they'll say Joseph and Mary or mm-hmm. something like this. But if you get in, a, get in a motorcycle accident and you survive, 
you'll take your helmet to the church and hang it up on the wall for, for where you were, for the saint that was taking care <laughs> of you. You know what I mean? We are very that? superstitious. And then, for instance, every time I have a travel, I've got my granny. She gives me the picture, the little picture of the patron saint, and then to protect my journeys, everything. We are really like that. Who's your patron saint? And Padre Pio. He's from oh, Apulia. Padre Pio. And then I was actually forced by my family to believe in that, to be honest with you. The, but this is the way we are. We cannot offend the families. Otherwise, we're going to be in trouble. And Ricardo, uh, what is your patron saint? Um, let's say maybe because I'm from the north, I'm a little bit more Look, detached. Told more you. Drawn. There is a difference. Oh, told okay. you. No, that is interesting. <laughs> so you think when you look to the south, you see people who are more connected with their traditional faith? Yes. I would say so also because they're more temperamental, which is not a negative point. Right. Please, th- this is important. You know, we're talking about differences. We're not saying one is better than the no. other. So. They're more temperamental in the, the south. In the south, of yeah. course, they go more towards religion, towards yeah. the faith, right? You know, towards uh, the destiny. Well, it's the destiny that I have to do this. We, we, we believe in the family. In the south, we are really attached to the family, and then we don't want to offend them. Yeah. So this is, the, in my opinion, the difference. For instance, I'm married to a German lady, and then uh, you're the, married to oh a God, German. Don't tell me. So when do I, I. When <laughs> so I introduce, I. yeah, when I introduce my wife to a very strict Catholic family, yeah. and then my mom. I was saying, oh, Aldo, I will accept her. We don't care. But when she asked me, is she Catholic? And then I told her she's not Catholic. That was an offense. She was <laughs> even sending three, four priests in my house to convert my wife. I'm not kidding to become wow. a Catholic. So little Aldo married a Protestant. Oh, God, don't tell God me. God help you. <laughs> so did I. And you did too. And yeah, you're still thing, okay. Yeah, I'm still the, the only thing, my mother was so happy that somebody was taking me away from home. <laughs> so opposite, oh, I see. <laughs> opposite from Aldo. No, it was different for me. When I left my house at the age of 17, and my mom, she was crying all the time. Your she mama. Was, yeah, Are you yeah. a mamone? Still now. Oh, yeah, I'm a typical mamone. I get a phone call three times a day, so at what the is, age of 40. What is mamone for our listeners? Mamone means I'm addicted to my mom. And then, for instance, when I go back home, she lives on the top floor. I live on the middle floor. And then when it's lunchtime, because my wife, she cannot cook, she put the lasagna in a basket, she throw the basket, and everyone is grabbing the food for lunch. Your, so mom, mo- your mother drops the oh, lasagna yeah, like down in, in a basket. With the basket like that. Oh, and then we I all get. And my wife, she's pretending I, I prepared the lasagna, but we know <laughs> the truth. You know how lazy are the people in the South? They don't even do two flights of steps to go and collect Look, the lasagna. Look, now we, yeah, we yeah. got a fighting. <laughs> they, <laughs> they drop it down from the... Because one of my treats when I go to Sicily or yeah. Southern Italy is to I look at, it. I walk into the neighborhoods and I see all the ropes coming down yeah, because, because people live no on elevators. Yeah, there no elevators. elevators. It's a poor place and yeah. there's six stories high in these uh, apartments, very dense population. And especially older ladies, they, they can't, they can't get yeah. down. They don't walk so well. So they drop their rope down. With well the money inside. With yeah. the money and they get their eggs or their milk. Yeah. Or, or Sometimes what? I can see the lady actually into the basket going down. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> but you get the lasagna every oh, day. Oh, definitely. That's so, my treat. Now, uh, you, so you got this mamone thing. And the, yeah. What is the Italian word for the uh, umbilical cord? Uh, cordone umbilicale. So it's difficult to cut that off. Oh, yeah. It? It's going to be like this forever. It's still definitely. there. Oh, yeah. It's still there symbolically. Mamma mia. Okay, Nancy, there's your insight into, <laughs> into a little bit of Italian culture. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you for your call. Ciao, Nancy. Grazie. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. Ciao, ciao bella. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ricardo and Aldo about Italia. Our phone number is 877 Bravo! <laughs> and Kathy's on the line in Dexter, Oregon. Kathy, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks and greetings to you both. After such a serious discussion about the Catholic Church, we're going to talk about something like pizza. Pizza! <laughs> okay, transition from Catholic wow. to pizza. <laughs> Um, we were, you know, fortunate enough to visit Italy in the last couple of years, and the farther south that we were able to travel was Naples, Then we spent more time a little bit in the north. But we've noticed, or at least from my perspective, it didn't seem like there was that much difference from the toppings that you get on the pizza, and I wondered if it was just something that we happened to experience based on where we went or if you do see more of a difference between North and South on what people like on their pizzas. Now, that's very interesting. We're going to let the Sicilian talk about this because I think pizza is sort of a national dish in 
Well, well, it's a national dish in Naples, Napoli. Napoli. Yeah, the first pizza which was invented was actually dedicated to the Queen of Naples, Margherita, la Regina Margherita. And as a matter of fact, incorporates the three colors of the Italian flag. But the real one... Explain, explain the three colors and what Yeah, so we got a mozzarella and white. white. Mm. Then we got a rosso, red, the tomato. And then we got green, the basil. So So you got to put the basil on there or it's not an Italian flag. (laughs) It's named for the queen, Margherita. Margherita. Okay, so that's the one basic kind. And what's the other basic kind from Napoli? We go, we go loads. We go loads of pizzas. And it's very, it's very thin. The typical Neapolitan pizza is made in the oven. And the taste of the olive oil. What, what's the little restaurant in Naples where they, in, they say they invented the pizza? What is this? Uh, I do not know. I don't remember. They have just remember. two pizzas on the list. There's only two pizzas they serve. They're very purest. One is margarita, yeah. and the other would be... Napoletana. It's a Napoletana. Napoletana yeah. With anchovies. With the anchovies, uh, okay, yes, but I nice. don't remember the name. So getting back to Kathy's question, would there be a difference between what you'd find on the pizza between the north and the south, Ricardo? Not really, because yeah. more than north and the south is the pizzaiolo that makes the difference. The pizzaiolo is the one baking the pizza. The oh, one you see him okay. flying the, the, the bread. So how does that matter? Know? It depends on him, really. There is no, you can have excellent pizzas in uh, Milan, as you can have in, in um, down in Catania. So it's very much in the cook more than that. But one thing that, as we are talking to American friends, very often American people remain a little, not disappointed, but surprised because our pizzas are different from what you're normally used in the state. In the state, the pizza is much richer. Is a meal, you know, it's when thicker. you have a uh, thick, we, we, we brag about yes. a thick, I want a big, yeah. thick pizza, but in, in Italy, <laughs> that would be very bad thin. news. No, absolutely. Very thin. A thin so for you, what's the perfect and, uh, pizza? not so rich. Okay. Not so rich. So it's a very um, pure, good ingredients. You can get more stuff in it. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to explain to our friends when we go there. If you want a rich pizza, you just ask the waiters. You right. add these and that, the sausages, and then they will do it for you. But otherwise, our pizzas are usually rather plain. Okay. And because yeah, Ricardo, you know, we like it that way. What's your uh, favorite? Margarita. I'm going so for the purest. You go for the margarita. Yeah, so margarita. Good mozzarella. See, good mozzarella. Tomato uh, sauce. Couple, tomato sauce, a couple basil. of uh, fresh leaves of basil. That's it. Nice. And how do you like the crust? The crust, uh, I like bread, so not too cooked. Not too cooked. Mm, not too cooked. That's you know, you, you can tell the waiters. Yeah. Oh, you can? You know, really? Oh, yes. Oh, you can I tell, tell them the... if you want a little thicker. If See, you... for my English muffin, I say mm. make it crispy. But you mm. can do that with the pizza also. Sure. 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 Margarita is my favorite one. And when we have the family reunions on Saturday and Sunday, we have a pizza by meter. Did you know that? No. Yeah, we got to, let's say, we get together 24 people because that's what we do on Saturday and Sunday. It's a must. And then we go to have our pizza night and then we just have a big table and we order two meters six, of pizza. Yeah, two, two three, four, five pizza. meters with all different toppings. It's great. Nice. Yeah, beautiful. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating our way through Italy, it sounds like here, which is, a, I guess it's a natural thing when you get a couple of Italians together celebrating the edible culture. And we have Aldo Valerio and Ricardo Panreo. Hey, uh, Kathy, does that give you some ideas about the pizza? It does. It sounds like maybe that we just need to do a little bit more sh- checking and sampling the, the mm. crust and the doughs. So. Yeah. If I have uh, four friends and I'm going out to dinner to a pizzeria, I'll ask for four different pizzas. They come in four or eight slices and ask them to come 15 minutes apart each, and you have a nice meal and you get to eat the whole menu uh, rather than having oh, the wow. whole menu to yourself, and that's a lot of fun. That is a great idea. Okay, thanks for your call. Ciao, Kathy. Thank you so much. Buon appetito. Buonasera. Ciao. Ciao. We have more of your calls just ahead for Aldo and Ricardo at 877-333-RICK. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com as we explore Italy from north to south on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring the differences between the north and the south of Italy, and we're joined by two Italian guides and friends, Aldo Valerio and Riccardo Panareo. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Susan in Santa Cruz in California emailed us, and she writes, I try to get to Italy as often as possible, almost every year for the past decade. When I go, I make a big circle visiting both the north, where I have family, and the south, where I've come to love. The sense of humor in the north I find to be more subtle and dry than that in the south. The people are more reserved in the north. They have higher expectations that objects and systems should and will function. 
The cuisine is a little heavier in the north, but in general, it's wonderful. In the south, I've noticed they use gestures more. There are more lively interactions among the people, less insistence on following all the regulations, especially while driving. It seems like the farther south you go, the greater regard for generous hospitality I find, and the food is also absolutely delicious. The sense of humor is a little more slapstick in the south, and it's hilarious. Fascinating. Aldo. I agree with her. Definitely. She, she nailed it. <laughs> she took the picture. <laughs> she took the picture. We love imperfection in southern <laughs> Italy because it, something which is not perfect can make your holiday, your stay a memorable experience. And if you're looking for efficiency and perfection It's not and a holiday. Order, you don't go to South Italy. Or be, yeah. You're going to be having frustration. Definitely. You have to celebrate the chaos. Yeah, and we love it. Well, that's a, we, we call it organized chaos. <laughs> organized <laughs> chaos. <laughs> How do you say that in Italian? Uh, chaos organizzato. Marianne's on the line enjoying a little chaos organizzato here on the radio <laughs> from Southgate, Kentucky. Marianne, thanks for your call. Hello. Ciao, Marianne. I just called to um, talk about uh, my experience when I did go to Italy. I have family, um, distant family, in a little town called Spinay. It's in the uh, mountains, kind of um, in between Rome and Naples. Okay. And when I went... We only had eight days, but a friend and I, you know, we spent some few days in Rome and then took a bus tour down to Sorrento and Pompeii and Capri and just had a wonderful time. Um, everyone was so friendly, and there was a time in Rome where we were sitting, waiting for a bus and didn't know which bus we had to take to get to the Colosseum, and this elderly gentleman walked up to us and just started serenading us. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that was fun, and... He spoke very little English. I spoke very little Italian. But between the two of us, we were able to converse. And, and he, you know, showed us to the right bus. You know, Marianne, you sound like a person who's not very uptight, uh, at least when you're traveling. And uh, I think that's probably a key to enjoying Italy is not yeah. being uptight. If the bus is late, hey, you've got a lot of people here. Let's have some fun. Of any place in Europe, if there's a traffic jam, only in Italy will people pull the car over open up a, a picnic table, and have a little party right on the roadside. Yeah, you know? oh, yeah. it happens. <laughs> it happens. So it's an attitude, isn't it, Marianne? Oh, yes. You just, you just kind of, you know, enjoy it, and if something goes wrong, you find an alternate solution. There was another time we got kicked off the bus, and we thought, okay, and we were <laughs> like, what do we do now? So we just kind of walked around Rome and found our way back. And Yeah, you got to do that. That was the most fun, just exploring on our own. I think it's the right attitude. You know... I always tell to our friends when we tour Italy, one of the first things I tell them, listen, you're not going to change Italy in 10 days or two weeks, whatever. We are like this since 3,000 years. You think you're <laughs> going to do something about that? So you just go with the flow. And actually, very organized people like American people remain surprised because at the end, in spite of the organized chaos, things go to place. It does work. You don't know Amazing. how. We don't know how. <laughs> And also, well, Marianne, you have experienced our Italian philosophy, piano, piano. Of course. Yeah. That, that means slowly, <laughs> yeah. slowly, slowly. This is the way we live. That's the way I would love yeah. to live all the time. <laughs> well, not always we can go piano, piano. Because, well, well, but we try to. Now you're in the European to. Union and yeah, people are going now. presto, presto. Huh? <laughs> Miss Angela Merkel doesn't want us going piano. Okay, piano. so you got the, the Chancellor of Germany uh, snapping the whip. <laughs> Marianne, when you're thinking about all of this fun and, and going piano, piano, uh, do you speak Italian or did you manage without speaking Italian? I took a class um, before I went to Italy to learn some conversational Italian. So, no, I really don't speak it. And what was funny, when I did try to speak the Italian, um, they would usually answer me in English. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, It's always like that. These guys, I feel like I'm speaking in, in Italian almost here with my friends. <laughs> I start picking it up and I start to sound like I'm an Italian. But you know, so sometimes <laughs> you, open a, you go to a restaurant and you open your Facebook and you try to do your best, best Italian and then there is somebody from Chicago answering you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then it's a little frustrating. <laughs> Mary Ann, thank you so much for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Happy Ciao, Marianne. Ciao. Ciao. That is frustrating when you're using a phrase book and you want to learn and the waiter goes, <laughs> okay, come on, what do you want? <laughs> This is Travel with Rick Steves and we're exploring the differences between the North and the South with Ricardo Panareo and Aldo Valerio. Ricardo and Aldo, you know, it's um, the economic crisis in Europe and everything and people are starting to realize, hey, we need to pay taxes and uh, Italy is famous for having, a, I think, a little recreation in not paying taxes and you've got wealthy industrial areas in the north and uh, a lot of chaos organizzato in the south. 
What is the situation with taxation and distribution of money between the North and the South in Italy these days? Ricardo. Well, that's still an issue in Italy. Of course, now that we are in Europe, our friends in Europe, especially the German ones, they keep a close eye on us. So things are getting now, we are not as creative as we used to. Yeah, now so we have more to be... seriousness. Oh, yes, now things Because are Germans getting, don't want yeah. to pay your bill. That's yeah. right. right. Basically, that's right. Let's say within the north or the south, you know, we are smart people all over, the mm-hmm. north and the south. Maybe in the south, people take it a little easier than the north. Not because in the north we are better than the south oh. or the other way around. It's just maybe because of the mentality. It's a different uh, tempo different, of life, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, but, but still we have a long way to go. But I that. remember, uh, you know, you pay a toll to go on the free race, mm. the, yeah. the yeah. autostrada. Auto like many other countries in, the north, in Europe, by uh, the way. But I remember there was a yeah. time when you did not pay a toll in the, in the south. south. That's and, the same thing. Yeah. 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 And that was paid basically by the people of the north. Definitely. And even there was a cheaper gasoline in the south, less oh, tax. Mm. So there was that sort of help to the south. Mm. And the South has had a more difficult history, you could say. I believe this situation in the South is also due to the lack of employment. And we have had, we always have had, that's why we had so much immigration in the past, 20s and 30s. Just there's not job opportunities. No, no job opportunities. most American Italians, I think, are likely to be of Southern uh, origin. That's the reason why we invest a lot in education. When it comes to North, at the age of 18, they don't continue the education because they know they can get a job There's a job waiting for you. And in Sicily, you would have over-educated people who just, oh, there's, yeah. there's no job. Oh, they have to go to the yeah. north. Yeah. Interesting. Now, when you think about the passions of Italy, you got food, you got the Catholic Church, you got soccer. Is soccer a religion in the north just like the south? It is. It Tell is in the that. north. It <laughs> is in the south. south. I think yeah. it is everywhere. We love soccer. I'm actually, I live in Sicily, but I'm a great fan of Napoli. And that uh, you cannot imagine every Sunday for us is like uh, <laughs> watching a mass, going into the church and pray the Madonna for the miracle. So this is the way we <laughs> oh, are. So if you're going to go to church, it's going to be to play for oh, a definitely. miracle. We make, we make promises. Obviously. My granny, she lights up candles the night before. Your granny I'm lights not kidding. candles for... She wears the soccer uh, t-shirt, everything yeah. is such a... And what team is she rooting for? Napoli. Napoli. She has <laughs> to. Otherwise, it will be an offense for the family. <laughs> <laughs> what a question, Rick. You shouldn't be asking what, what team. My goodness. <laughs> and Ricardo, what is your team? Well, I have to say that I'm... One of the few exceptions, I, I don't, I'm not one of the great fans of uh, You're not crazy uh, about soccer. Soccer, no. I prefer the other strange ball with the two. Well, with the top. pointy ends. Yeah. Re- American football. Not really. We don't have it in Italy. No. We have rugby in have rugby. Uh, in. Uh, but, you in know, Europe, for so. a tourist to go into a stadium during a soccer game is an amazing experience. Yeah, I took, uh, I made sure that some of the people in our groups took tickets because there are people from America that like soccer. It's a great experience. The last time we were in Florence, I got the ticket for them to go to see Fiorentina. Now, which hey. is the, which Fiorentina. Is Fiorentina. Well, so what do you think, Aldo, when you think Fiorentina? Mm, I tell you in Italian, mamma mia, <laughs> that means, and I'm not happy with that, is definitely. That right? I feel like there's a, you know, there's a medieval-based grudge match yeah. between yeah. Siena sure. and Florence, and oh. it's, it's fought out today on the soccer field, I think. Yeah. Oh, yes. It is. So this is sure. really a fascinating thing. So soccer is passionate. Catholic Church, passionate. Food, passionate. What else, although is very close to the heart of the Italian people? For me, yeah. uh, coming from the South, la familia, the family. The family. And yes. that's what, I, uh, going back to what you said before about the economy, unemployment, we got unemployment in the South, but we got a family to support us. If we are in a very difficult situation, the family is there. That's okay. why we are mamoni, going back to what That's we said right. before. So you, you don't put grandma and grandpa into a house somewhere no, and, and we visit don't them do only that. at Christmas? No, 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 we don't do that. You have them right upstairs, <laughs> huh? <laughs> Ricardo, is that the same across Italy or does it vary? Yeah, from well, region? not so intensively like maybe in the south, but mm-hmm. still the family is very, very important in the north as well. Yeah. You know, the, I mean, it's I basically that. that's very, very important. In fact, in my work, I've mm-hmm. gone to so many over the last mm-hmm. 30 years, I've been going to restaurants and I've been going to uh, hotels. And, you know, this might be Gino's Trattoria. And now Gino is barely able to walk and his kids are still there. (laughs) But they take care of Gino and he's still welcome there. He's sort of the king of the place. And he shuffles around and grates the Parmesan cheese on people's pasta. And that's what It's a gratitude for what they have done to us. Yeah, that's beautiful. So That's beautiful. But, you know, we should go back towards the thing because in our civilizations, we are going to drop the senior citizens, you know. If you don't produce... 
you're finished, you're out. Ah, yeah. If you go to other continents, you know, who other is cultures, the they, they, who they, is the chief of the village? The oldest person. Okay, yeah. So, the, know, the, so in some cultures, you forget what really matters and you value the person who the wisdom, is the most the knowledge, the, the physical yeah. contributor. But in Italy, you remember the value of... Although yeah. uh, we are also changing like the rest of the yeah. world. Yeah. So we are gaining something, we are losing yeah. something, you know. That's globalization, yeah. I guess, yeah. in so many ways. Ricardo, you've been uh, going to bat for the North here. If a tourist from the United States is going to Italy and they want to really enjoy their time up in the North, what's one good tip that you would give them? Well, you know, ask your George. I'm talking about Clooney. So I'm saying that one of the <laughs> big attractions of the North is absolutely the, the Italian Lake District, oh, apart yeah. from George. I'm sure that the ladies don't agree with that, but, you know, the, the lakes is, itself is really beautiful. All the Lake District is fantastic with all the background of the Alps that's you know, you remain speechless when you're in front of that place. So, so when we think of these lakes in the north, it is sort of where Italy is welded to the Alps. And yeah, you've got these gorgeous sure. lakes. Every lake has its own personality. Sure. Which one does George Clooney like? Uh, he's in Como. Lake Como. Como. Me and George, we're the we're same. I love Lake Como, you know, too. Aldo, if you want to enjoy the south, what's your best attitude to take with you and what's your best tip? I love southern Italy. I believe that it's got so much charm and so much history. But uh, uh, definitely Sicily. Sicilia. Sicilia. I like to say Sicilia. Yeah, Americans Uh, are just going Sicily. Seven days, ten days in Sicilia, having a tour of the island. It's such a big island, discovering uh, important archaeological sites. And the irony is a lot of Americans think, oh, Sicily, the the organized crime, the Camorra or the mafia or something like this. But when you go there, you find the friendliest people anywhere. Oh, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I had uh, a passenger. She was asking me, I only came here to Sicily because I want to see the mafia. And then I told her, don't expect to see someone wearing a T-shirt. I am a mafioso. It's not like that. It's changing a lot. It's working behind the scene, but we got it. But this is not the main reason why we need to see Sicily for this reason. But for a tourist doing typical oh, yeah. things, it's, it's not amazing. an issue. The, the Maybe main... she needs to go to Zurich, probably, to see a real mafioso. Now. <laughs> right. Yeah, just come to my father's house, definitely. <laughs> the magic of Italy from north to south. Aldo and Ricardo Milik. Grazie. Grazie a te, Rick. Ciao. Thank you, Cardi. Ciao, ciao. Bye bye. One of the great joys of being in Italy is to see up close the great art and architecture from ages past. And that includes the Renaissance, which gave birth to so many masterpieces of Western civilization. During the Renaissance, Europe was home to less than 100 million people, and it was truly a small world when it comes to the big shots of history. Joining me right now is Jean Openshaw. Jean's the co-author of my book, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler. Let's take a look at the important figures whose lives overlapped 500 years ago. Put them all together, and it's almost like holding a reunion for the class of 1500. Imagine if Michelangelo, Leonardo and Henry VIII all went to the same high school. Gene, think about it. All these guys, these like were cultural superstars. They're living at about the same time, and, and that all related to the Renaissance. A single Renaissance generation, more or less, all of them living around the year 1500. You might even call it the class of 1500. <laughs> I can just picture it. Yeah, the, the yearbook there is Leonardo. Leonardo, cut your hair, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now, what is the Renaissance? Well, we all think of the Renaissance as just art, Michelangelo's David, Mona Lisa, and so on. Um, but it was more than art, and it was happening all over Europe. In politics, you're talking about the formation of nation-states. In religion, they're questioning church authority would become the Reformation. That's right. The Reformation was the same time as Michelangelo and Leonardo. And in science, you have the empirical method, new inventions. Now, Florence was the epicenter of it all. Think of Michelangelo's David. You're right at the the Duomo, the big red dome in Florence. Right behind that Duomo was Michelangelo's studio, and he's chiseling away on David, which really was the symbol of the Renaissance. Everything started in Florence in the 1400s and then spread through Europe in the 1500s. Okay, so so around 1500, let's just say that's the, the general pinnacle of all this action. In the same time in London, you got Henry VIII and all the, all the changes that Henry VIII was bringing in England. And Henry VIII was considered, you know, we think of as this guy as an old, fat, pus-ridden, paranoid old man. But in the early 1500s, he was the perfect Renaissance man. 
He was young, he was athletic, charismatic, scholarly, everybody loved him. He wrote music. So there was this positive spirit, this humanism, this energy, and at the same time you've got this demand for control and information welling up from the people. Martin Luther uh, and the Reformation translating the Bible so people could read it in their own language that was happening in the same generation. Exactly. Martin Luther was, you know, at, at the time in the early 1500s, Martin Luther would have been in Erfurt in Germany. You know Erfurt. You, yeah. you love oh, Erfurt. I love the place. You've got all this, this thought of this little German monastery town standing up against the Roman Catholic Church. And eventually he would go on and pound his, the nails in the Wittenberg church door and stand up to the Pope in Rome. And at the same time, Columbus is, well, all these guys, Magellan, Columbus, and so on, Vasco da Gama, same generation, figuring out that there's more to the world than Europe. The age of discovery, people bringing in new plants, new animals, new customs. Now, all of these things were happening at the same generation. Was there an awareness? Did these guys, how did they connect with each other? Some of them knew each other or corresponded. But they were all connected. You know, they, they talk about six degrees of separation. <laughs> yeah. You know, you could have a six degrees of separation that okay, connects. Okay, connect me. Like, uh, let's go from Michelangelo, from Michelangelo to Martin Luther. Michelangelo to Martin Luther. They never met, but uh, follow me here. Okay, so Michelangelo knew Leonardo da Vinci. Uh-huh. They both were Florentines. They competed in a painting contest. Leonardo was a musician. He played in parties for none other than Lorenzo the Magnificent, the ruler of Florence. Uh-huh. And Lorenzo, his son was a pope. So well, Lorenzo's son grew up to be Pope <laughs> Leo X. And Leo X had to deal with radicals like Martin Luther. So there you got a connection right there. But there's more. You know, Leo X dealt with Martin Luther. He also dealt with the Florentine Niccolo Machiavelli. Okay, so you're talking about how this was an age of more than just art. You have, like, Machiavellian politics. The ends justify the means, all this hardball stuff. And I know Henry VIII, from the same time, he was a fan of Machiavelli. He did. Henry VIII considered himself a scholar. He liked Machiavelli. He also was into religion. Henry VIII actually wrote a treatise condemning the heresies of Martin Luther. (laughs) And Martin Luther was friends with artists like the painter Albrecht Dürer. And Dürer, his works were admired by Pope Leo X, the very man who had grown up with Michelangelo, who had corresponded with Henry VIII, and who excommunicated (laughs) Martin Luther. Luther. God, there's like 80 million people in Europe back then, in the year 1500. But it was a small world. Oh, man. It's always good to remember that a little art and a little history can add a whole dimension to our travels. Thanks a lot, Gene. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Aaron Harding and to the BBC in London for their help this week. Rick has also recorded walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com for a link to Rick's audio tour app. And we'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guides for Rome, Venice, Florence, and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.